Right. But I think that's my point is that, and that this is why I would argue to your point earlier that you don't think this is a horror film because I think without this film, half of the, the stories in film and, and entertainment would not exist. I truly, truly believe it forever changed cinema in so many ways. So many ways. From it creating Showtimes to having an effect on a film like Frozen, um, presenting misdirection, just all of the things that this film did for cinema. It cha- I truly believe this is the film that changed cinema for the rest of time. Welcome back to Blood, Sweat, and Popcorn. John here. Oh, Hitchcock, that crafty devil. In 1960, he gifted the world a groundbreaking film, filled with horror and guilt. Psycho was, and still is, a cultural phenomenon. My friend Erica returns, and we dive deep into the themes, power, and legacy this movie created. If you like what you hear, and you dig this episode, Go follow us at BSB Film Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Spoilers ahead, so you've been warned, but also it's been 60 years, folks, so come on. So don't jump in the shower just yet. Stay with us as we chat Psycho. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. Now don't call me Shirley. They call it a shark, not the shark. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. We're tonight's entertainment. This some serious gourmet. Showtime! I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown. I you. you gotta do something or just stand there and bleed. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Here's Johnny! Three, two, one. Make sure that we keep ourselves. Oh. Okay. Sorry, I thought you were gonna do a clap. I'm like, you don't need that. There's no video. There's no video. No, <laughs> that's that's not how this works in, on podcast world. Well, in podcast land. Maybe you'll get there one day, like Joe Rogan. I mean, I'm right. I'm like right behind him. I mean, you're, yeah, you're chasing him. Right. Yeah. Watch out, Joe. <laughs> Coming for you, buddy. Welcome back to Blood, Sweat, and Popcorn, guys. It's John and uh, Erica's back, back in the studio, which is not a studio at all. And we're going to talk uh, a classic, mm-hmm. a classic horror film that's, uh, I don't know, It part of me doesn't really think it's a horror film. What? I mean, it totally is. Why do you not think it's a horror I film? I think it's more like just suspense thriller. Because sure. it's got a killer in, in it, and mm-hmm. it's like a mystery. Yeah. Um, of course, I'm talking about Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Right. Um, and, yeah, like it's, uh, there's so much to unpack in this movie that, you know, even from the setup with Janet Lee beginning in Phoenix all the way to the very end of the film with Norman Bates in the police station, there's mm-hmm. there's so much to unpack. Um, and what's so great about this film is there's these little nuances that get punctuated from Hitchcock's direction that this is one of the few films that, you know, informed me that this is what a director is good for. Absolutely. So a writer, an auteur, auteur, if you will. Um, As an aside, folks, 
Erica is working on her <laughs> graduate thesis mm-hmm. about Mr. Hitchcock himself. Yes. And uh, I took a gander at it. Good stuff in there. It's it's much better now. I've okay. I'm close to I'm I really want to I really want it to be done this weekend, but it's probably going to take me a couple more days, um, just because I can't stop editing it. But it's almost there. Have you have you done the whole thing where you you put it down for a week, walk away from it, and then come back with some fresh fresh peepers? Not. Not a week, but a couple days. Yeah, like I, I. Um, I mean, being being a writer myself, I, it's easy to get lost in what you're. Oh my god, yeah. Like, and and then, yeah. and then I get to a point too where I'm just like, what the fuck am I even talking about anymore? Like, I just had like I was, yeah. You just get so deep into it, you're like, what am I even saying anymore? I really felt that way with um, the section on Vertigo that I was writing about, which we should definitely talk about Vertigo too in another episode because. Oh yeah. I'm obsessed with that. So film. I I want, actually want to rewatch. Um, I want to do a, a three-piece with you next time with yeah. Rope. <gasps> Stop. No, I'm sorry. Rope, a a four-pack. A four I want to do Rope, Vertigo, North by Northwest, and Rear Window. Yes. Um, two at a time, though, because, my <laughs> God. There's, but I, I have to rewatch Vertigo and North by Northwest again because mm-hmm. I've only seen them once up each. Yeah. And Rope only once. Um, oh, my God. Rope is, is funny. I don't know if you listened to that um, – unspooled episode that i sent you of north by northwest no not yet no. you should yeah you should listen to that um but it's funny because in that episode they talk about how um usually your first hitchcock film is the one that you love the most and mm. rope is that for me you know how obsessed i am with that film um yes uh it was funny like <clears throat> but we're gonna tie it bring it back to psycho because when did rope, rope come out 1948 okay so so you think about Hitchcock's body of work leading yeah. up to Psycho. He had a, more or less, you, you can let me know if I'm wrong here, he had a string of hits. It would seem like he had North oh, Northwest yeah. right before 1959. He had Vertigo was 58, 57? Um, fuck. 56. Wait. Um. Well, okay, so this is my point. Yeah. He, so he's knocking out of the park. He's just... And, and then at the same time, he's drumming up his... 58, the, you're right. Okay, great. So in the meantime, he's drumming up this, you know, the Alfred Hitchcock's Presents, the TV yeah. show. Well, he and, had an extensive filmography before he even came to the U.S. So he was right. doing silent films and stuff in, um, you know, the U.K. before he came to America. So he has those films as well. And then, well, you think about where how Psycho kind of landed, it was kind of like a joke... Mm-hmm. Kind of like uh, uh, he's kind of like giving a sneery, snobby look to all his critics, and because before that, like right before that, was North by Northwest, which was this giant production, yep, big stars, yep, uh, my man James Mason, of course, <laughs> and um, you know, so it was, I mean, big sets. Was that Mount Rushmore? Uh, you know, they reference James Mason in the ro- in Rope in dialogue. Do they? They do. So Janet, um, Janice. That's her name, right? Yeah. Um, the woman in rope that is David's. Not, not the housekeeper. Correct. Not the, the housekeeper. The other one. The guest. The guest. Her that, his wife, a girlfriend. It's a sister, actually. I can't oh, remember her oh, name, but Janice. I got to watch it again. Janice um, is David's girlfriend. David, mm. the one who's, spoiler alert, dead in the chest. Right. His girlfriend, Janice. Remember? It's been a while. Okay. So that one for, but yeah, so. Um. She and the older woman are discussing 
men that they find attractive. Oh. And one of them says him. James Mason? Yeah. That's and then funny. And the other one goes, well, I prefer Cary Grant myself or whatever. And it's funny because Cary Grant, of course, is in oh, yeah. North by Northwest as well. That's that's a good little, little, yeah, little it's through, funny. through. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, foreshadowing, um, if you will. Right. Um, um, now I – Janet. Janet, not Janice. Okay, sorry. Fair enough. Well yeah. – Okay, so you know, and you know, um, Hitchcock, he was really good at casting like beautiful people. Because mm-hmm. um, who was who? Who played Sam in Psycho? The super handsome guy. Mm, yeah, I don't know. And then, uh, of course, oh Je- shoot, I Janet did. Janet Lee was beautiful. Yeah, Norman Bates, really handsome young, younger man. Yeah. Um. And uh, so, but you know, but back to Psycho, like, mm-hmm. um. You know, he kind of was, it was almost like, not like a, a joke, but kind of like, it was a send-up of, to all his critics of like, look, I can do something small. Yeah. And uh, I think it's because he took it seriously, but he didn't, like, it wasn't, f- like, a pressure, you know, f- given to him by, like, a studio or something to mm-hmm. produce something grand like he mm-hmm. just made. Right. Like, I feel like he pumped the brakes a little bit. Yeah, and he, and, I mean, he even said himself that it was a, it was a prank, it was a joke. And the film, and uh, I know that I read that the studio just did not, despite the fact that he just was killing it. Otherwise, they did not really believe in the project as heavily as as, as other ones. So they, they, that's why he got the deal to get the box office returns because the studio's like, oh, he, they made mm-hmm. a deal. I think he gave up some of his salary mm. for that, and it ended up making him in that time buku bucks. Yeah, and. Uh, and you watch you watch seventy fifty two, which yes. is the documentary about the shower a, scene, it, essentially. Yeah, essentially, but it's also about the entire film. But it's really about the the shower scene. So we'll probably reference that a lot today because I I use that as research for my thesis. But also, I just think it's a great documentary about Psycho and Hitchcock, and you know. So I never the film. I never read the book. Um, sorry, but. You know, if you think about what a screenplay is, you know, it's it's uh, uh, paragraphs of settings and character development interspersed with lines of dialogue and, and, and scene changes and exterior shots and interior shots and the blueprint to make a film. Yeah. And that's when a director walks in like, all right, well, we have to have these two characters do this from, from here to here. Yeah. How do I get them here? Yeah. And that's really how, like I was saying earlier, how Hitchcock – he he puts the paces of his of his actors uh, puts them to to their paces to not just do like a simple talking head piece mm-hmm. like you and I are talking right now. It's mm-hmm. it's there's something else going on. Sure. And you know we we talked on the show before about everything's got a meaning. Yeah. And he does that with his set design, his camera movement, his yeah, you know, like you said, direction. And. Everything from the, the littlest things that you don't really think about, maybe not on the surface or in the, the first viewing, you know, the, the one-on shots mm-hmm. with the cop and mm-hmm. um, even with Mother at the end, mm-hmm. Norman Bates, and everyone's kind of like looking at you and you're looking mm-hmm. back at them and the, this whole theme of like, not mirrors, which isn't so heavy-handed, um, it's more like alluded to, like we're looking back at someone. Yeah. And it's his, it's his theme of duality, which was 
in a lot of his films. And this one's heavy on the guilt. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Which uh, is actually what I'm writing my thesis about. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, even the, the little subtle way when, when Jantley goes back to her room after dinner with Norman Bates to take a shower and mm-hmm. change, get ready for the night, it takes the frame off, the painting off the wall. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's – in the drywall, it's cut out to match his, the size of his, of mm-hmm. his face – that great, super ultra close up of his eye, mm-hmm. and it's oh, it's paralyzing how good it is. Mm-hmm. But and I love, and they talk about this in seventy eight fifty two about how big that hole is that his like peeping tom hole, right? right. Like it's his entire face. Yes. Like <laughs> the fact that it's his entire face tells tells you so much about him. He's done this before. He's comfortable doing it. Um, it he. There's a reason why you put her in cabin number one. Right. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, so this is, this is again, the, my point where on the screen, on the screenplay, it'll mm-hmm. read Norman Bates takes off the painting, looks through the peephole. Mm-hmm. And that's, that can be done a number of ways. Absolutely. But the way it's done, we get brought in yeah. to his eye and we get brought in to, to Norman and, and, we get connected to how he how he looks the, at the world because mm-hmm. we're slowly learning this dude's got a few screws loose because you know in the back parlor room we we were kind of jumping around we need to start from the from the beginning but mm-hmm. you know in that back parlor room when he's talking to to Miss um, Crane you know she can kind of tell this dude's a little unhinged mm-hmm. he's making her uncomfortable mm-hmm. he's very aggressive when when he gets challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, but he has no one to really articulate emotionally with, because a lot of his he's got a lot of stuff wrong upstairs that he can't just figure out. It's mm-hmm. too much is is just buried in his head. Mm-hmm. Oops, and that makes for a really interesting conversation. That you know, I want to say it's kind of almost like Norman Bates's not his fault, but it's kind of like I think. In a way, she kind of sees through Norman, looking at Norman, that the world was wrong and she doesn't want to be contributing to that. So she has that change of heart. Like, hey, I'll wake up. I'll drive back. I'll put the money back. All right. I can still fix this. And I think it was this interaction with Norman that kind of just turned that around for her. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that didn't go very far for her. Mm-hmm. But let's, let's take a break mm-hmm. to go back. Mm-hmm. To the beginning. Yep. <laughs> and, and Got a little ahead of ourselves. That's I, fine. I get, I get really excited about this film. but <laughs> So we have a great opening shot. Yeah. That kind of just goes on for a long time. As this, you know, Psycho opens. Let's talk about that score mm. real quick mm. by uh, Bernard Herrmann, mm-hmm. right? Oh, man, that's a classic score. And it's been imitated countlessly. Mm-hmm. And that's the, you know... I remember we talked about this whole opening credits. Yeah. You know, do we or do we not like mm-hmm. those? Um, they work here. I love them. Yeah. They look great. They're fun mm-hmm. to watch. Mm-hmm. And then it accompanied by this great, great score. That the score kind of like, it, it tells you this movie is going to be stressful mm-hmm. and intense. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to tell you how. Yeah. And um, so go, you're going to say something? No. No. Oh, okay. So 
The credits end, and we are in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh-huh. I do, actually. I'm sorry. I do want to say something. Go ahead. Because I think this is... I, I'm obsessed with Hitchcock, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> because I truly believe that he changed so many things about cinema. Um, and one of those things is before... And, and by that, I mean, like, he changed things even like outside the world of the theater. And by that, I mean him cre- essentially creating showtimes. Yes. With this film. Yeah. If your butt was in the seat by such and such time, you're right. going to have to miss it, Jack. Right. right. Yep. Um, and that had never been done before. And I think that's just something that people probably never even thought about. Like, oh, how did showtimes get created? Like, that's not something that ever crosses an average, I think, especially an average moviegoer's um, mind. And you know what? It was a, a bit of a dry run to how Kubrick would later on become so um, invested in the marketing of his films mm. because mm-hmm. how Hitchcock really just changed the course mm-hmm. of how we went to the cinema. Kubrick also had a lot of say of where the where his films would be played in, mm. where you know uh, uh, how they would be marketed, what posters they could use. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people it, in the studio will take the reins, and you know, outside artists will come in and they'll doctor up the artwork and they'll, mm-hmm. they'll cut the trailers. Mm-hmm. Kubrick had complete control over everything. Mm. And I didn't know that. That's and cool. so that the the impetus of that was after he made A Clockwork Orange in 1971, mm-hmm. um, two things happened. Um, a lot of copycat crimes were happening because you haven't seen that movie still, have you? Clockwork Orange. Right. No, it's on my list. Um, so it opens up. The first half of the movie is this guy, the main character, Alex, and his gang of droogs or his gang of just a bunch of dumbasses that they cause, they cause mischief and they hurt people. They rape people. They're just not good people. They themselves. And so what this was doing, you Did know. Did they kill people? I won't spoil anything for you. Okay. Um, but what, so, anyway, so after that movie came out in the UK, it incited a lot of uh, copycat criminal activity. Hmm. And that caused a second thing to happen. Kubrick. Like people were, act, like real people in the world were actually doing this? Yes. Oh, shit. Okay. So, so because of that, um, Kubrick and his family got a lot of death threats. Oh, wow. I didn't um, know any of this. Um, so you talk about a good documentary. <laughs> Yeah. Um, watch Stanley Kubrick, A Life in Pictures. Mm-hmm. They, they, it's really well done. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, so this, this this inspired the second thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Kubrick, you know, American director. He moved to England later in life. Mm-hmm. He, thinks he was actually living in England when he was making A Clockwork Orange. He pulled it from cinemas. Hmm. He did. Hmm. Studio was like, we're going to lose money. He's like, I don't give a fuck. Hmm. He pulled it out of and it was not re-released after he died in cinemas. Hmm. So why did he pull it? Because these things were happening? Death threats and yeah. Oh, death threats against his family. And, and because of, it was yes. happening in so, the world. Oh wow. So that was just like the that was just like the pull he had. Hmm. Like he just didn't give a fuck. Like mm-hmm. he pulled his movie back and I don't think, you know, I couldn't name a director today that has that kind of wielding power over their, their own films because mm-hmm. essentially it's the studio's film mm-hmm. or whoever's distributing mm-hmm. it and it's a business right um 
especially in Kubrick at, and Hitchcock, both in their respective primes, were they were big draws. They mm -hmm. made lots of money. Sure, the name. And that's why I got again why they had so much control because they produced. They got gave, they gave uh, they gave results. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. got results for their studio. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anyway, so back to Hitchcock. Yes. Yes. Um, definitely changed the way how. Um, and you know, how we went to the cinema, even had like the stands out front in the box office mm -hmm. marquee or the, in, the, in like the lobby, like, mm -hmm. like, hey, you got to be in here by a certain yeah. time. Yeah, because films used to just kind of play. And I actually loved that that was kind of just recently shown off in um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like how, um, oh God, what's her name? Um, Margot Robbie. Yeah, but what's the, her character's name? Oh, um. Come uh, on. Sharon Tate. Thank you. Oh, wow. Um, I need to be here on my coffee. <laughs> um, um, how she kind of just like pops in to see her own film, right? And like there wasn't a shit. Like it was already playing, you know what I mean? So like. Yeah, I, did they like loop the films back then? Yeah, they were just they would just play. So you would just come in oh. and sit and, and catch the film whenever and then watch it back to wherever you you came in on it you know what i mean that's interesting so and that's why you hear hitchcock say i didn't want someone to come in and, and towards the end wonder where janet lee was and wonder where janet lee was right so i just thought that was brilliant how he was like you know like you said you won't be permitted into the theater after this time because that was part of it, right? Is seeing it from the beginning. And I just don't, I, I think especially now people don't understand that's how cinemas used to work back then. I had no idea. Um, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Did you not even know that until I just said it right now? Uh, No. Yeah, they no. would just play on a loop. That's a, that's a, no, I, did, I have no idea. That's yeah. fun. Isn't that crazy? So by him saying, no, 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 you have to see this film from start to have the experience and also to not spoil it for yourself. Right. right. Like, imagine if you came in on, like, the third half of, third half, the, the, the you know, a third like, in. Yeah. And then, like. And it, you see the reveal of Norman being his mother at the end. You're like, what the fuck? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, and it's, like, I, I mean, I don't know how, you know, I don't know how many films in the 60s and prior had, like, these big reveals at the end that they was they didn't i don't yeah these twist endings and such they didn't so i mean it probably wasn't something to expect to be and plus the culture was hey man pay pay your nickel go in the movie and right. watch what you want to watch yeah. when you want to watch it that's how it that's, was. that's a culture shift yeah and but and i think it's also good because mm -hmm. it also kind of structured a little bit of the showings um yeah it would it'd be interesting to, to calculate like how a showing is going to be sold out mm -hmm. how would you know mm -hmm. because if people can come in willy nilly, like yeah, like Erica goes in for the first half of the movie, she's already seen the back half, yeah, and I come outside like, oh, there's a seat open, go find my seat, and I'm like, mm -hmm. how's that work anyway? Right, but you know, I so I'm writing also about how he created suspense, right, in his films, and I think this is really like you can anticipate a film, right, like you can. Um, Based, especially based on a preview, like anticipated what it's about, but him creating the suspense outside of the structure of the film of you have to be in your seat at the beginning, that's creating suspense before you even get to the theater and the show starts. You know what I mean? Totally. Like creating the suspense of like, what could be so earth shattering that I have to be in my seat when the film starts, especially because it was unheard of at that time, right? right. Like, like, I'm trying to compare it to something 
nowadays. Like, I don't know. Like, it's just so, like you said, cultural change of this. I have to be in my seat. Like, people then probably were like, why do, like, what, you know, there were some people that were probably like, oh, I got to see what this is about. But other people probably like, whatever. Big man's not going to control me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it was like, you know, he's going to fucking rock your world. <laughs> yeah, I think they all sufficiently shut their lips. <laughs> right. Um, let's get back. So okay. we open up in Phoenix. Yeah. And... I love this great sweeping shot. It goes all across the skyline of Phoenix, mm-hmm. and it and it slowly creeps and creeps into this mm-hmm. bedroom. And you have Voyeur, voyeuristic, which is how he started almost all of his films. And we have um, all his voyeuristic ones. So we have Miss Crane and her boyfriend Sam Loomis, right? Um, sure, I think that's I his last name. Yeah. And what's your first name again? Marion's the sister. What? Who's her, who, no, her, it's Marion. Marion. Who, wait, who's her sister? Um, Lila. Yes. Lila, that's right. So Marion and Sam, and they're lovers, and and he lives, he lives over in California. He lives far away. Mm-hmm. He's got to catch a flight, or he's got to do something. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was, like, divorced. She was never married, but he Correct. was married. Right. And they're talking about, like, you know, I don't want to be a secret anymore. They want to kind of be out with their relationship, mm-hmm. but it's kind of like kind of taboo mm-hmm. in that i mean especially i guess in this time frame you know a married man messing around not that he was messing around i think he was his marriage was dissolving mm-hmm. anyway yeah um but you know the the big thing i think that hitchcock wanted us to take away from the scene besides establishing Marin's character was her being in, in the white bra mm-hmm. and you know it's it's almost kind of like a cute little haha i changed the bra color because mm-hmm. she's doing something bad now but like it's it, is is it the symbolism is symbolism that does need to be like that? Like you think it's it's warranted? I mean, does cha- the changing of, of a color of under- underwear? Absolutely. You know, tell me why. So, and you probably read about this in my thesis. Yes. <laughs> I'm just th- I'm, I'm setting you up this whole time. I know. Did you think about that before you read it in my thesis? No. 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 I, I, I went to your, your thesis as, as cold as I could. Mm-hmm. So. But you'd seen the film before you wrote totally. my thesis. Yes. Um, again, I'm, I'm dying on the hill always of everything is meaningful, mm-hmm. even to, I think, you know, her having a name that is. Religious. Well, but also like a bird, right? A crane is a bird and the birds will come into into play later um and also you know that first shot it's a voyeuristic shot but it's also like it like a bird right it just kind of swoops in and flies in on you know in their bedroom Mm -hmm. and and even i think in 7852 they reference it like if you can imagine it like a fly right because especially because of the i'm not even going to swap that fly at the end right yeah a lot of of through points Mm -hmm. in here but I, so in begin that first scene, she's in a white, like you said, in white underwear, um, bra and everything. And, and the white, just classically in any type of symbolism is pure, right? Like, mm-hmm. and I think especially at this point in the film, you know, we're just being introduced to her. We're seeing that she is pure. She's, she, you know, 
whether or not, I mean, obviously they just boned, right? But like pure in the sense of like, she hasn't stolen the money yet, right? Um, she's not a criminal. She's not criminal. And, um, you know, she she wants that um, sense of honesty, right? She even says to him, like, Sam, let's get married or whatever. And she's like, um, what did he says something like, uh, I, I, don't, I can't remember exactly what the lines are, but something about, you know, um, she says you can come over or whatever and, and um, my mother's picture on the wall, right? And right. it's that thing of like, especially the recurring theme of mother, which is in a lot of Hitchcock films, but like, you know, she's watching, right? Because he even says something. guilt. Right, right. So he even says something like, yeah, and then we'll turn your picture, your mom's picture to the wall, right? Because he's like wanting to get down to business. Mm -hmm. And I think she, of course, desires that. But I think she also realizes like, I'm a woman that's, you know, whatever age. She's not married, never been married. Society's essentially writing her off, right? So I think she feels that. um, Well, yeah, a woman's, a woman's, you know. It's funny enough, like, this is right around time when women were really being allowed to work and, and be more than a homemaker. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, she was, what, in her mid, mid-20s, roughly? Mm. But she wasn't married yet. Probably, she had, probably mid-20s. Oh, gosh. I think she's probably a little older than that. The character? Yeah. I mean, maybe. Um, I mean, I wouldn't jump around. I don't want to stay in too long at one spot on mm-hmm. this. But um, I, I could talk forever about I, every single scene of I this know. film. So and, you're gonna have to. Really I mean, and, and it's it's due. Yeah, uh, I it's know. It's due. Um, but this good setup here with uh, Mary and Sam. Okay, really quick. Let me just make this point that. Okay, and I think this is to your point that is everything that symbolized, and I think yes because. If she was, if there wasn't the contrast later of her being in the black bra on the black underwear, you could say like, oh, her being in the white ha- really had nothing. It had right. no symbolism. But because we see her again in her bra and underwear and it's black, that's where. Yeah, it's 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 a great use of symbolism, sure. and um, it and also shows growth is may not the best word, but mm-hmm. it basically it's character's growth in her arc. Mm-hmm. Of the story, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm going to come back to this point later with you, um, maybe towards the end, maybe towards the middle. I'm not sure yet, but I'm going to I want to hit you with something later about this. <laughs> so we go to her office. Yeah, and I don't want to spend too long here, but it was it's basically it was the MacGuffin gets introduced. Mm-hmm. MacGuffin is the forty thousand dollars in cash that the showboat comes in. He's yep. and he's macking on her, and and then his, her coworkers all like, well, he didn't hit on me because mm-hmm. I have a wedding. Uh, yeah. Also, she's nowhere near as pretty as Marion Crane is. Let's be real. Um, gentlemen prefer blondes or some shit, right? Uh, uh, I have black hair, everybody. <laughs> don't take it personally. I'm, it's in the movie, okay? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, so, no. Um, so the boss, in the, in the boss, Marion's boss is the consistent because she works at a, 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 at a, not a bank, at a real estate firm. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. The guy yeah, comes in with 40, exactly. 40 grand in cash mm-hmm. to to put down a on a house or something mm-hmm. for the dude's daughter. Yeah, and and uh, again, you think this is all super important, and it's not. It's not. Mm-hmm. What's important is the money. Yeah, well, that, that's what I'm saying. I mean, but, so this whole thing is built around it to make you think it's important. So, 
and that's that's a good misdirection because you think the movie's gonna be about the money, right? And it's because not because it's the MacGuffin. <laughs> that's what MacGuffins are for. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hitchcock is great at, at misdirection. So yeah, but MacGuffin's got to push the plot. Yeah. So now you know, Marion, Marion, Korean. We, we've at this point we know. Hey, forty grand in. 1960 or 1959, I guess, when this was set in cash. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, I think the equivalent I read was about $360,000 hmm. in today's money. Okay. And and later on, when she trades it in her car, is like, what, 700 bucks? Yeah. The trading value? Yeah. That would be about six grand today's value. Roughly, someone did the metrics for this. Okay. The mathematics. I don't do math. Neither do I. I, I, I find it elsewhere. <laughs> I found I saw this tweet the other day that was like, you could literally tell me anything about math and I'd believe you. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's the slope? I don't care. Um, <clears throat> slope? Are we going skiing? What are you talking about? <laughs> right, yeah. Algebra, bro. Algebra. No. I haven't done, I have not done a math class. Done a math class. Take <laughs> You done some good math. <laughs> Taking a math class since sophomore year of college over ten years ago, because that was the only credit I needed for. Uh, I take two classes, two math classes bullshit. in college. Why algebra? But and you know what? St- no statistics was for my major. But I'm also the person that bitches that why did no one ever teach me how to do my taxes? Like that's the shit they should be teaching people in high school. Tangent alert. Sorry. Let me read back in. Sorry. I'm not saying I, I don't agree with you. Yeah, I know you do. Because <laughs> fuck math. But yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, Let's stop talking about math. My yes. Bad. Um, but anyway, so yeah. So she needs. To, she wants to get out of town. She wants to go live her life with Sam, mm-hmm. and she's got a clean break essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's like, oh, I got a headache. She wants to go home for the rest of the day. It's a Friday, no problem. Hey, before you go home, just drop us money off at the bank. Right. Yes, sir. No problem. And then. On her way out of town, she packed her, actually she packed her suitcase with the money, wearing her black bra. She's leaving she's town. She's evil now. She's evil. She has black bra and panties. She's evil. How dare she? Do you remember? Okay, sorry. Little short, t- tiny little side tangent. Continue. You've seen 10 Things I Hate About You, right? Oh, my God. One time. I One it. time? This We're is... adding it to your not important list, but you have to rewatch. Oh, my gosh. Okay. What? I can't believe you've only seen it one time. I'd rather watch Heath Ledger and other things. Angela Styles and other things. He's and dreamy. Joseph Gordon-Levitt and other things. You know, the Joker and Robin. <laughs> Can I continue? That's true. Um, <laughs> I just want to say that, remember, in, I was going to say, remember in 10 Things I Hate About You when the sister is going through her sister's like room and she finds the black bra and underwear and she's like oh you know and the guy's like what he's like you don't have those unless you want someone to see them that's you don't remember that anyways whatever well well, you remember high fidelity with john cusack i haven't seen that (gasps) okay so it was was, spoiler alert Mm -hmm. um there's a quick bit in there about underwear where john cusack the whole movie is him going back to his old ex relationships as girlfriends and he's talking about this one girl who um, used to be like a slut or something, but she, because she, well, I've got the actual how it was phrased out, but mm-hmm. the the whole thing was she would always wear these nice 
nice panties and stuff because mm-hmm. she'll only wear them if she knew she's going to go sleep with a person that night. Sure. Like a matching set or just like nice just like underwear? Just like nice racy, lacy, sexy underwear. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, it was just normal cotton briefs and nothing too crazy. Mm. So, um, <clears throat> but yeah, to the point, like she's wearing it for somebody. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, okay. Okay. So, yeah, she's in, she's evil now because she, Marion. So she runs out, she leaving town, leaving Phoenix, and she, their boss spots her mm-hmm. as he's on the crosswalk. I love that. And, like, he looks back. He's like, he, first he sees her, like, oh, hey, because he's, they're like doing like a friendly nod. Yeah, like, and then, and then the they realization. Both, they both yeah. realize, oh, shit, that's my boss. He's like, yeah. oh, shit, that's my employee. Yeah. Who said she was sick and going home. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And he's like, huh. And, I don't know, because we don't know how much time has really passed, but it was enough for her to go home, get packed, right. and leave. So and in my mind, if I was the boss, that's enough more than time to drop by the bank, drop the money off, mm-hmm. and then go home. But anyway. Well, I think it's just that thing where it's like, first of all, I love that Hitchcock, I love the way he shows us things without telling us. Like he uses the camera to, to sh- and like reaction and shot composition and all these things to show that. It's mm-hmm. not like a, they ran into each other. Oh my God, what are you doing here? There's no dialogue. It's nope. all just Fate showing. Face. It's all showing. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think that doesn't matter. I think it's the, you know, whether how much time has passed or whatever. It's that thing of like, you know, I don't know. Have you ever told someone you were going to be somewhere and then they see you somewhere else? Or have you ever like, I, you hear all the time like people like, I remember in college, I only skipped tw- class twice my entire college career. But people would be like, oh, I skipped class and then I saw so-and-so yeah that professor right. in the hallway going to a different class or going to the or doing what you know whatever you got caught fucking off yeah and it's and, like, and i think yeah. that's what it is like it, it realistically could she have been going to the store sure or, whatever? or going to the bank to drop off the money you know what i mean right, like right, right right maybe but it's it doesn't that doesn't matter right now but see like but he knew something was out of place that was that's what the whole thing was telling us because we knew that she was doing something wrong but what it told us about him is he put it together like that's not what was supposed to happen that's not what she told me what she was going to do right so that's why he has this odd confused look on his face like because it's not what how he recollected it's not adding up correct she runs leaves out of town and i love how she has this inner dialogue of the conscious of everyone's talking about her like oh where's the money yet i thought she was gonna drop it off Mm. call her we can't get a hold of her go find her Mm -hmm. you know and i love that and it's all it is is preying on her Mm. guilt because she knows she knows she did wrong. Yeah. And and then she gets so paranoid. Um, I, and I I, I don't want to spend too long here, but I like the whole bit with when she one she gets falsely on the side of the road. The, the cop wakes her up, and I love the how the cop looks. These big aviator shades, and mm-hmm. he's like, and he's not doing anything but just being doing his job. Mm-hmm. He's like, hey, are you all right? Anything wrong? Mm-hmm. And she gets really defensive, mm-hmm. and he's just. I'm just asking how you're doing. Right. And then, then, but then that kind of tips him off. Like her behavior is so erratic. Yes. He's like, all right, something doesn't smell yes. right. Yeah. And then he follows her. Yeah. And that. But he, so he, he loses the tail. He kind of like goes off an exit. And then when she goes to pulls into the car, the car lot, the trading cars, she sees him across the street. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, oh man. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really love the quick scene with the car salesman. 
and I, lo- I love that line, like, you're not going to be in any trouble, are you? Mm. It's like, the first customer of the day is always trouble. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and she's like, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> Her it, face is like, st- she's well, so stressed out. And if she wasn't doing anything wrong, again, that line would mean nothing. Just like the white underwear would mean nothing without the black underwear. It's that line, that innocent, that car salesman thinks he's he's just being funny and saying an innocent line. And this, again, goes back to my thing of, like, there's not a wasted line of dialogue. There's not a wasted anything that's showing us the reoccurring themes there. You know what I mean? Right. And so she – so she – uh, swaps out cars, pays a seven hundred dollar difference, and almost runs out with her her luggage. Oh, um, yeah. And then because he goes, he goes, hey, he yells after her, and she stops. Like, oh man! Uh-huh. And you see him like pulling out the like he yeah. your bags. Yeah. And all, this whole time, the car. Uh, I'm sorry, the cop is pulled into the car lot. And I like how it's like, you know, when you're on a highway and you're driving, and you're not maybe you're speeding, maybe you're not not sure, but you see a cop, you automatically immediately check your speedometer like, yeah oh my god or a cop's behind you and you're just he, he's just driving down the road right but you're you just feel like oh absolutely i did something wrong didn't i you can't help it right do you think but i think hers is amped up because she did in fact absolutely do something wrong yeah yeah and then it, oh, and i think i think hitchcock is playing on that too right like this this figure of authority gives everyone that feeling Mm-hmm. Um, whether he, he was afraid of the cops, Hitchcock was. He was, yeah, and that stems from him early, 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 early when he's a early kid. childhood. Yeah, yes. his he his father took him to a police station and pretend locked him up for a little bit and set him straight before he did anything wrong. Yeah, but also it sent him in this obsession of you know. Thanks, Mr. Hitchcock, for doing that to your son. I know, right? <laughs> um, this obsession of you know innocent man gets locked up for something i mean that's that's essentially all of what north north by northwest is right well i want to bring up a point though is in this film like within the first this is what maybe 15 minutes in Mm -hmm. basic setup of the character mcguffin's introduced she's on her way making her escape to to california Mm -hmm. to see her, her 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 boo and and live out in probably secrecy for a, a while, and within fifteen twenty minutes, there's already so much guilt, paranoia. Yeah. And we have not even met Norman Bates yet. Yep. And and I don't want to get to my point yet, but I will. The one I was telling you about earlier. Uh-huh. Um, because <clears throat> I don't really want to hear your thoughts on it. But anyway, and she gets you know signs towards Bakersfield. I know what exactly what part of California she's at, especially if she was coming in from Phoenix. I know where right in, in the state she was at, mm-hmm. and I love. I know it was shot in California. Mm-hmm. It was set in California, mm-hmm. but I love how it, how what movies usually do if a movie is set in California and shot like you can t- like it's always like the palm trees. It's like the bright side of like how Florida looks sure. on film. Florida sure. looks great, but people don't see on film like the you know the Tiger King stuff. That's how Florida really looks. Yeah. You know. Have you uh, seen the Florida Project? I have not. Mm, add that to your list. Okay. Um, so a lot of uh, most of California is this desert. Yeah. Is this desert with lots of dirt and lots of just. Of course, this was 1960 and very underdeveloped still. Well, and it's interesting too that you say this because um, you know I mean the fact that 
this was black and white was mm-hmm. a strategic choice by Hitchcock. Yes, it was. Um, you know, too, col- well, I thought it was too gruesome in color. Was- well, yeah, but also like he was showing control in the sense of like, yeah, I can do color films. I've done color films, you know, but like I'm not, I'm not doing that with this. It was very strategic. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Sure. I. Well, I mean, the black and white plays well against the landscape of California. Mm-hmm. I think that's why you brought that point up, um, I think. And Sorry, I was adding the Florida project to your list. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> um, no, uh, uh, it looks – so what, it, what that tells me, and this is my own – me pulling this out of the film, mm-hmm. is life isn't always – how it's presented sometimes. Mm-hmm. So we are looking at California, and it's not Disneyland. It's not Hollywood. It's not skiing in the mountains. It's this barren wasteland, yeah. almost off this, off this beaten highway. That's that's you know, and it, this forgotten no man's land. Right. And it shows you like this is the real world. This is yeah. this is how it really is. Yeah. And she stumbles. She pulls into. A place to stop for the night and happens to be the Bates Motel. Right. And and that goes back to your point too of like the, it was a time in like culturally, which they talk about this in seventy eight fifty two, where um, these little side motels on highways and stuff weren't really being stopped at anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, she pulls into the Bates Motel and she's the only person there. Um, and Norman is like you know alone essentially. We think, um, yeah. and <laughs> um, and no one's there, you know. Right. So it's showing us to, and I love to that little line where he says something um, like the I don't know the nearby town or whatever, and she's like, "Oh, we're that close," mm-hmm. and he's like, "Yeah, it's like you know, thirty miles away." Yeah, or something. and I, I love that. There's like that little, like, mm, should I have just kept going? Like she has that. You but, see her have that thought. But also, you know, you got to think about it. she's on the run. She mm-hmm. doesn't want to go to a flashy Holiday Inn right. or whatever equivalent it right. was in that time frame. Right. So that's why she she, she meets Norman Bates. Um, she she signs the ledger, which, you know, it's funny. Like, he's so – Norman Bates is so about being formal and, and, and doing things despite the fact that it's a failing business. So – and that and – that, the whole ledger thing plays big into the, later in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the ledger is one of the biggest pieces of, of importance, but more on that later. So she meets Norman Bates, and we meet him. He's this nice enough, good-looking American guy. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't seem too threatening. He's just a guy running a business. Mm-hmm. Um, lives out back in this big old house. Yeah. He seems very professional. Like, can I help you with your bags? Can I, mm-hmm. you know... You know, polite. The, he seems polite. He's very polite. Yeah. And I think most people were polite back then. Right. More, more so than they are today. Right. You know, manners maketh man. And um, it's nice to see that even you know, how we come to find out who, how Norman's mind really is, how he still is conscious enough to be polite and know that he's still running a business, even though he has this very attractive woman show up on his doorstep all alone. No one else is around. Mm-hmm. And and what do you think of Norman Bates 
at first? Like, what's your, what's your, uh, what was your original take on him? Hmm. Um. Speaking from either a woman or a film person. Hmm. Those are two different things. I know. <laughs> um. As a woman, yeah, you're like, oh, he's, yeah, he's tall. He's cute. Um. He seems nice enough. But for some reason, as a woman, too, I just kind of got this, like, childish feeling from him. Like, I I didn't feel like, you know, sometimes in films, sometimes a lot of times in films, two characters are introduced and you're like, yeah, they're definitely going to bone. You know what I mean? Like, I never got that feeling the first time they met. Like, I never felt like um, she was going to go that route with him mm-hmm. um probably also because you know i understand that she's very much with this, with set this on dude. being with sam yeah 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 um but i i still felt this like i don't know childish like kind of thing when i met him not that i didn't think he was cute or whatever i just feel like i looked at him and like you know they are different like different ages i didn't feel like they were they're probably supposed to be around the same age but i didn't get that feeling um, right now, as a film person, you know there's there's more going on here. Yeah. Um, um, even when you first meet him, just because like it wasn't, it's not just like a oh here's this character, he's the guy at the motel. It's like he's going to continue to be a character. Right. He was introduced for a reason. Absolutely. And. Um... <clears throat> Yeah, it's like what are you what are you or what are you expecting from this character? What's he going to bring to the story? Right. And uh, and you have no idea. No, no you idea. don't. And and I think Hitchcock is so good again at at setting up this. You have no idea what's going to happen. Right. Because um, I think you probably the first time you're watching it, you're probably thinking like, okay, yeah, she's going to stop this hotel. Okay, this guy's weird. Something's going on here. But you truly believe like she's going to get up the next morning and he's just a he's just a pit stop right yeah uh until you realize it's definitely not a pit stop <laughs> right and i think this that's the thing it's hard i think these day, this day and age a film so culturally rooted as psycho is even people that never seen the movie end to end or at any at all there's something about like they they mentioned this in 70 uh, 53 7852. 52, excuse me. About like the ree, 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 mm-hmm. how it's people just know that. Yeah, it's what the one guy says, like his daughter um, knows that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's like six years old or whatever. And he's like, Have we just evolved to just you're no. just born knowing psycho? And I, that's my point. It's yeah, like, it's, it's like so it's, ingrained. It's so it, I think it's a challenge to find someone. I mean, I know they're out there, but like to find someone like quote off the streets, hey, watch this movie. And tell me you know what's going to happen next, and then not be completely surprised, because you know if you're just watching this film, if you go into this film cold, not knowing what's going to happen, you it, at this point you just see her steal the money, and she's on the run, and she makes a stop, mm-hmm. and this guy who runs this hotel seems a little peculiar, but we don't, he's just right. he, he's nice enough, he's just running the show here, mm-hmm. and we're following the money. Right, the MacGuffin. Well, I think I think to your point, I think people probably know about Psycho. They don't know exactly how it comes about. 
like I think they know. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, I yeah I um. So, um, you think about like she strolls in, and this this movie is called Psycho, right? And really, we don't know what that term means yet. Like, right. assu- assuming we're we're a, a cold audience, yeah. And it's got crime, it's got mystery, and it's got this uh, this woman who's conflicted. Because she wants to kind of run away, start a new life. She made a bad move. She's feeling guilty about it. This movie's telling me I'm guilty. That At this point right now, as she's being Norman Bates, that's what I feel the audience is supposed to be feeling and mm-hmm. thinking. Do you? She's our protagonist still at this point. Do you feel like... Did you ever feel like you wanted her to get away with the money and get away with it? I never thought about the question, so I don't know. Um Again, that's because I'm corrupted by my own experience. I right. can't recall a time before I knew Psycho's story right. where I could kind of have that, that naive un- hope right. that that's, I could, that could have been a possibility. Well, it's interesting, too, how is it like, you know, not to put the cart before the horse here, but, like, is it like, a, are you watching it thinking, like, yeah, I want you to get away with this money? Or are you watching it, like, when she gets murdered right like you got what you deserve you were stealing 50 or forty thousand dollars because i think audiences probably felt that way yeah she got what she deserved play with fire you got burnt right and it's like why do people feel that way about money but not so much like i mean i think about rope right so yeah so it's again even up to the and this again we're teetering we're tiptoeing around the question i want to ask Mm -hmm. you so badly um but we'll get there Okay, you keep using this question. I know. Um, so it's a morality tale. Mm-hmm. For in this plot plot line right here, she steals the money. She she committed a sin, right? If you will. Yep. And she paid the piper. Yeah. Was the sentence commuted a little stricter than what the crime committed? Yes. You know, but she she transgressed. Therefore, she was punished. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it had anything to do with her, which is what I like about this, it had nothing to do with her being a woman. Like, like, incidentally. Okay. She happened to be a woman, and the killer killed her because she was a woman. But I think it just, circumstances, she broke the law, she committed a sin, and she was given her penance, which was death. Mm-hmm. And, but... So, let's get to that, though. Mm-hmm. So, Norman Bates and her have, we talked about this earlier, they have a conversation in the back parlor. She doesn't want to drive 30 miles or whatever it was to the diner to get some dinners. They drive all the way mm-hmm. back to, to the bed. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, I'll make you some sandwiches. Mm-hmm. Eat back here. Mm-hmm. It's, it's comfortable. And maybe it is, you know. Um, and the whole time we're, we get more introduced and familiar with Norman Bates. Yeah. And... Again, his his facade of not that's a facade. I think he really is a nice nice kid, and I think he's really polite. But the cracks of his other personality are starting to show. Yeah. And we find out later at the end of the movie why it broke down the way it did. Mm-hmm. I can't have to put the cart before the horse <laughs> here, 
and and she kind of challenges him on some questions mm-hmm. and his viewpoints, and he's like, "Well, I think it's like this," and she's like, "Well, okay," and they have a good little little quick banter, and she's like, "Well, you know what? I'm going to turn around. And I'm going to go to Phoenix tomorrow." She makes a declaration. I'm doing this. I'm going to go to bed. Thank you for dinner. And off she goes. And then we had the peeping Tom scene. And we spent some time with her in the room as she deducts the money that she mm-hmm. spent for the car based on what the balance is left, of mm-hmm. what she stole. And she rips it up, the, the, the thing, which comes a clue, a clue later that she was actually there. I don't know. I think, like, she spent... What, just the 700 bucks and maybe like the 10 bucks of the room? So like, how much math, girlfriend, do you need to do in your... Listen, the, math, not hard, math numbers are hard for some of us. I mean, I guess I, sometimes I visually need to see the numbers, yeah. too. Uh, but then she rips, she rips it up anyway. Mm-hmm. I guess so she was just giving herself, like, a mental note. Like, anyway. So she gets a shower. She gets into the shower. And this scene's so funny because, like, it's not funny. It's It's great. Very great, but it's 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 so. The one-two punch of this scene comes at you so hard because, mm-hmm. really, all you really know about Norman Bates at this point is he's a creep. Mm-hmm. At this because he's polite, nice. Oh, he's also a pervert. Okay. Okay, that's an easy sell. I believe he's a pervert. He's lonely. He's a, he's a guy. Guys are more perverted than women. Let's be real. Um, okay, but we're back to Marion, mm-hmm. and. I know what you want to private. You have a lot to say about this scene. Well, I have a lot to say, even leading up to the scene that you didn't touch on. Is like, go ahead. That please. first time when she kind of, you kind of realize that she's like, okay, something's off about this guy. She wants to get away. Like she had her dinner. She, you know, whatever she wants to get away from him. That scene with the birds looking, like they're all just looking at her. Um, you know. It's just foreshadowing him pulling the the frame off the peephole and all that stuff. But that when she leaves that that scene, that's the first time the camera doesn't follow her. And I think that's super important to note is that that's our shift, right? Like it's a tonal shift. It's a okay, we're with Norman now. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I don't think the average watcher would even pick up on that. But I think that's super important to note that, like, when she leaves, the camera does not follow her anymore. So Hitchcock is controlling us, saying that this isn't, she's not important anymore. She's not Norman's important. Right. We're now with him. And now we're like, oh, wait a minute. I thought, I thought, okay, okay, so what's Norman going to do? Right. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, so just that little time, and this is where, like, I think Hitchcock has truly evolved, and like you said, going back to what you said earlier about, like, being a director, being an auteur, and that choice of she's left and gone back to her room, and we're not following her. The camera's going to stay with Norman, you know what I mean? Um, Right. That's so, it's so... Again, I don't think an average moviegoer would even pay attention to that or, or notice that or even think about 
that at all. But that right there is such a tonal shift. It, it and from here on out, the film is it's a completely different film. Right, and so we get this really huge sharp turn mm-hmm. early, relatively to their whole runtime in the mm-hmm. film of oh, Marion Crane, bye bye, mm-hmm. and she's in the shower and she's just. You know, I'm not. I I really don't want to break down the shower scene that much. Okay. Um, I will tell the audience to go see seventy eight fifty two. Yeah. Um, they it's it's incredible. Yeah. And very great film, a documentary about the whole shower scene. It's on Hulu if you have Hulu. <laughs> oh, it is. I totally I rented told it. I told you this. I told you it was on Hulu. In in your defense, I told you that a really long time ago. So. Oh, my bad. I didn't. Uh, I, I. When you said you watched it, I was like, I bet you he paid money to watch it, I, and it was on Hulu. It was worth the money. Absolutely. So I'm not too upset about it. <laughs> um, okay, but my big thing is blocking. Mm. I love blocking, mm-hmm. and the way it's framed. The shower scene. When um, or in the beginning when it's just her, she's in the bottom right corner, and this whole empty space. And mm-hmm. of course, what we do, our eyes get pulled mm-hmm. and we see, because the, the curtain is translucent, we can't yeah. quite see through it, but we see something's happening. Right. The, the door swing open. Do you love that, Hitchcock? I love this idea. Again, I'm writing my thesis about control and guilt, so I'm focusing on these things. But I love that this is set up as like, okay, I'm about to see Janet Lee naked, essentially, maybe, right? Right. And that push and that push of control of like, oh, I really want to look at naked Janet Lee, but there's this thing over here. You know what I mean? Do you get what I'm saying? I do. Yes, yes. And what well, it's teased her her nudity is teased, and it, again, it's part of like she's in the shower. This is her private time. This is her a safe. A shower is supposed to be safe, and she can be naked and be free and and, mm-hmm. and wash herself she's washing away in her in her mind washing away the sins and the guilt and she's mm-hmm. gonna go to bed wake up vindicated i'm gonna right my wrong mm-hmm. and the shower so metaphorical yeah um for many things um well and i love too that this is um this is the first time we even see her like partially break a smile like oh she's been under like stress the entire yeah. time yeah, yeah. She's finally, I, yeah, I, that's a good love, point I yeah. about that. I love to, and they mentioned this in 7852, um, like, what kind of psycho gets in the shower and then turns the water on, you know? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> like, 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 he's like, like wh- who does this? Like, you run it and then you get in when you know it's safe, right? right nice and and that, yeah, like, yes. that idea that she just gets in and like, pew, water, and you know it's cold, like... And she just stands there, takes it. And, and she's like, like oh, you know, it's like on her face and stuff. And you're just like, you don't, but again, you don't think about that until you realize like, no one, that, no no one, one does that. What no. kind of psycho gets in and then turns the water on? Well, she's in the shower. Yeah. And the door swings open. Does it swing open? I feel it swings open. It's okay. not, it's not a violent like old K, old Western saloon. Oh, see when you when you said swing, I felt like that's what you meant. I feel like it's very like it it does it opens very quickly. Okay. Um, per my recollection, mm-hmm. and what opens even quicker is the shower curtain, and 
we're like, what? Oh, no. Someone's in the bathroom with her. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And we just see a figure. And the curtain pulls back and looks like it's a woman. And because it's got the figure of a woman, mm-hmm. essentially. A silhouette, yeah. So, yeah, silhouette. That's the right word. And we have this very, very intense stabbing. Though you never see her physically get penetrated by Correct. the blade. Correct. You hear it. It's alluded to, and we see the quote, I'm using air quotes here, the blood dripping, which is actually what, choc- chocolate sauce. Mm-hmm. and um, Hershey syrup. Yeah, well, no, but you think, okay, but to your point of blocking and, and my point of shot composition, you are convinced you see that knife slicer. You're convinced. It's so quick. It's, it's but, cut very quickly. Right. And so your mind is a lot of the work for you. The way it's cut, the way it's um, shown to us, the way it's it's very erratic. Like I love, I also love pacing. And when she first gets in the shower, the way the pacing changes to when she's getting stabbed is, uh, I mean, it's just like boom, boom, boom. You know, like the shots are just so much quicker. And, and the way, again, the way the shots are composed. And I love that. They talk about this. I'm referencing 7852 a lot, but it becomes all about her hands, right? Mm-hmm. And that feeling of like, if she could just get her hands figured, like maybe she could stop this, right? Right. Um, but of course, that doesn't happen. But you're convinced, again, you're con- like, you watch it, and then I'm sure if you talk to people afterwards, they'd be like, there was this gruesome shower scene where she gets completely cut and it's like and you're like you never see like you said you never see her actually get cut now there is one shot where you think you see the knife going into her skin but mm. and again they they break this down in 7852 they shot that and it's it's actually in reverse so the knife was like up against her body and then pulled away right you know and, i mean the shower scene kind of is like a gut punch because up until this, you know, this whole movie was not gonna is not leading you down the path of her getting stabbed in a shower. And uh, you know, to the point, let's not let's not like kick the dead horse, please, on this one. But randomness, mm-hmm. um, you know, <laughs> I know you in Hitchcock in the word randomness, um, it is kind of random because. How how many times have you gone to a hotel, checked in, and taken a shower and gotten stabbed and sh- stabbed in there? Probably none, right? Probably. But also, you never probably met the met the owner and had dinner with him prior to mm-hmm. as well. And the guy probably wasn't in an old beaten down hotel mm-hmm. motel off the off an old highway. Right. And so yeah, it's just it. It's like whoa, 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 whoa! Pump the brakes. Why? Mm-hmm. Why? Why is she getting stabbed? What? 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 And so now this film is completely different because now we lost Janet Lee. Mm-hmm. Marion Crane is dead. As and in, this is the reason why Hitchcock did not want you to come in to the no, theater just loosey goosey whenever you came in. She does a doornail, yep. and we cut back to the house behind the motel, and we hear Norman Bates going, "Oh my God, Mother, what did you do?" Mm-hmm. Ma, how could you? you know, Ma, oh my God! He runs mm-hmm. down, he runs, and I love how he, how we follow him as he walks into the room, 
he runs to the bathroom and then he revolts. He, he, he like recoils so quickly out of the bathroom. He like puts his hand over his mouth, knocks the picture off the wall. He's so like, he couldn't believe what just happened. Mm-hmm. He can't believe what he's seeing. This beautiful woman dead. And, but like a good son goes straight to cleanup mode. Mm-hmm. He's, he's the cleaner and he disposes of the body, puts it in the trunk and we get and I love the, I love this shot. It goes right back to the money. Mm-hmm. And then that tells us the money doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. And it really never mattered. Mm-hmm. And there's a great scene where he's, he's loading into the, after he loads her and her luggage into the back of her, her new car to the trunk. And he drops the car off into the swamp. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, it's kind of like, kind of, he's kind of smiling as it's going down. And then when it pauses for a second, it catches, I guess it catches some air and kind of like, oh. And then it goes back down. I was like, ah, oh, okay, we're good. Well, and you the know? audience feels that way too. You're like, yeah. oh, oh no, like it's that right. He's create Hitchcock has created this. Now again, Norman's our protagonist. We want him. We want to protect him. He's protecting his mother, who's mm-hmm. the murderer, right? Right. Um, and yeah, we want we want Marion Crane's body in that car to to go into the swamp. We get nervous for him in a mo in that moment of, oh my gosh, like we want to help him cover this up. We want to help him clean. It's that thing of like you know washing, like watching him clean the blood away from the murder. Like you're like, yeah, I get it all. Like, don't miss that spot. Don't, yeah, like yeah, yeah, get it. You know, <clears throat> um, but also it's like, are you thinking like, is this really the first time she's done that? I don't. I think no, because it gets hinted at later when Sam and Lila go to visit the sheriff, uh-huh. and there's missing people, missing girls before. Uh-huh. So it's never flat out said. It's uh-huh. heavily, heavily implied. Right. And so I kind of I don't want to like jump over this, the preceding stuff, and get to the end, but I feel it's all kind of more set up. So, but I'll let's just let's just take it back. She gets killed. He he throws down. Throws the car down to the swamp, and now mm-hmm. Marion's sister Lila comes out of the woodwork, finds Sam, because at this point we all know that she's missing. Yeah. And Sam's like, I didn't know she was even gone. Like she's not here. Mm-hmm. And we get the private investigator Arbogast, and I really like him. Mm-hmm, me too. He's a very good PI, and you know he's all smugly go. Oh, I almost believe you, and. Lies like I don't give a fuck if you believe me or not. Fuck you, dude. And, right. And uh, <clears throat> but like, but he does a lot of groundwork to kind of get some information because he's hired by was it who hired him? Was it the real estate people? Or was it the guy? I forget. Oh. Who, and I guess it doesn't really matter who yeah. hired him. Yeah. Um. So he has he doesn't really shake down Sam at his hardware store. He doesn't shake down Lila, but he's kind of like poking around because that's his job. Mm-hmm. And all three of them really are in the same race. Essentially, they have yeah. the same goal, right? And uh, you know, I like how Sam kind of just jumps on board, like, let's go find her, right? He owns a business and he's like, you know what, let's go, yeah, find her. Because you know, you can tell you can look on Lila's face how distraught she is because she knows right. something's something's wrong, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, she ran away with money to go to Sam's, not that's not the right thing to do, but I, I, she can understand it, right. 
in the pride eye thinks the same thing. Oh, she's here somewhere. She's not back there with the nuts and bolts, but but she's here somewhere in this town. Right. And the two of them are convinced she's she's well, at least the private eye is convinced that she's still alive at least, and she's she's around. So he does some some legwork, some detecting. Sweeps across all these hotels and motels. Nothing, nothing, nada. Hey, leave no stone unturned. Ends up at the Bates Motel. And then we get this great, you know, great back and forth with him and Norman mm, Bates. Yes, I love and, this and scene. The ledger and comes out. And like you can, I don't know, like he, because I think he knows a, a PI, a seasoned PI is going to know when someone's lying to him. Mm-hmm. It's, it comes up with a job. Well, yeah. And I love there's like that, the, those little moments where he's like, uh, where Norman says something like, oh, the couple that was here. A couple, mm-hmm. whatever and he's like oh i thought you said no one's been here in two weeks or what i can't remember the exact but you're like oh yeah like but also again you're like i probably would, I would make a great husband or boyfriend because they would actually listen <laughs> yeah seriously um <laughs> you know anybody <laughs> <laughs> i'll keep my eyes open for you um, um but yeah but like norman kind of because that's a problem with lying you have to re- remember everything, right. and Norman's just lying through his teeth. Right. And Arb- but you're like, but as the audience, are you like, oh, Norman, you're like uncovering yourself. Yeah, like you, again, he's our protagonist now, and you have this, what? Keep going. You have this feeling of like, oh, God, he's going to, the PI's going to figure it out. And I think, to, you know, I don't know if the PI figured all the pieces out, but he definitely was on to Norman because Norman was giving him so much without – because, you know, when people are trying to hide something, they kind of give away yeah. through body language because we talk like 70% of the time through how we're moving. Mm-hmm. And the PI is no dummy. He can like, okay, mm-hmm. everything you're telling me does not add up to what you just told me before. So let's let's talk to your mom. Let's do that. You know, he's just he's being he's being very civil. He's being he's being very polite. He's mm-hmm. just, hey man, I'm no one. I'm not after to get you. I'm just I'm just want to know where his girl is. Well, and I love that Norman says something like, "Oh, she, what what's the line?" He says something like about him being police or something. He's like, again, not a police officer. I'm a detective. Mm-hmm. I'm just wanting to try to get some information. Like, cause it's that it's that idea that Norman again is guilty and he's afraid that he, this person's going to, like, arrest him, essentially, right? Like, Yeah. Well, it's a fi- an authority figure mm-hmm. who's coming to call, coming, you know, his sins are coming home to roost. Mm-hmm. Well, not maybe not his sins in his mind, but the bad things that transpire are going to be brought to light. So yeah. he's nervous. He starts stuttering a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what? I lo- There's a shot in this scene that, that I always I think about. Um, it's when I don't even know how to describe the sh- the shot, but it's like Norman's neck is exposed. Do you remember that shot? I don't. Oh my god! It's like uh-uh. uh, you know how he's like eating, he's eating something like candy. Yeah, and again, childish. Um, but what is the det- the detective says something, and I think they're looking. Are they looking at like the sign in book or something? Yeah, he shows him the ledger. He opens it, opens yeah. it up, and he looks at he has because the detective, the PI, is going off the handwriting example yeah, he yeah, has. Yeah. And he and Norman does this like 
like look around like he like wants to like look around you don't you don't remember this it's vaguely his neck it's like so weird it's like i'm always trying to figure out what does that shot like it's just such a distinct movement of norman's body like he's moving like a bird yeah (laughs) yeah it's like yeah i'm always like stunned by that shot every time i watch this i'll look at it again oh my gosh you gotta go back and watch it um so well basically not that i mean basically norman Norman bates kind of stonewalls him says look Mm -hmm. you can't talk to my mom she's 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 invalid she can't come to can't she's can't move around too much Mm -hmm. and he's like okay 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 Mm -hmm. so he backs off the pi does Mm -hmm. calls back up lila and says look Mm-hmm. This guy seems well enough, nice enough, but I'm, I want to go back later and talk to the mom without him around. So he does. And this is the shot. This is one of the shots I love in this movie. Mm-hmm. It, it follows uh, Arbogast in, and it's like it starts very low on the first floor. And it pans up, mm-hmm. pans up, mm-hmm. pans up, mm-hmm. pans up some more, turns around. Mm-hmm. And it does it later, but here it, and it just centers right back around at, at the landing of the stairs. Like it's like the God shot, right? Yeah. Oh my God, it's so it's great. So good. It's, yeah. <clears throat> that's a director's choice. That's not what a, a writer can't write that down. Right. Like they can write, but they can't. A director is is this is where where they shine. And and. Uh, and it's a, a writer, cinematographer. Right. A writer can't just do that, and a cinematographer can't do that. You need the director to bring it together. Sure. You know. And and sure enough, uh, uh, Arbogast meets mother. And what's so creepy is that I th- want to say Norman. You see Norman somewhere else beforehand, so you assume he's not there. Well, and something that I want to talk about too that again Hitchcock controls and manipulates is you, we, we as the audience hear Mother's voice. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that is so manipulating because you're like she must exist because I've heard her voice. You're convinced. Oh yeah, you're like I've heard her talk. I've heard her voice. And well, more on that in that's a second. What gets, yeah, that's what gets me. So it's very convincing. Yeah. And so later on, you know, Sam drives by the hotel later, the motel, and he sees Norman. That's when we talk to him, looking for Arbogast. But where's Arbogast? He's in his trunk and dropped to the swamp too. And that's just, it's so cold how Norman's just kind of like, you know, it's like, it's, it's, oh, it's like, what's his name? John Wayne Gacy. So John Wayne Gacy, I'm not sure how much you know about him. I'm not a a fan. I'm I'm interested in how he, how he, in his process as a serial killer, Mm -hmm. how he would just kill these young boys. He would rape them, kill them, bury them in his crawl space under his house up in Chicago, and uh, it was just so like, yep, this is just what I got to do. Like he was like he was making the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like yep. I put the stuff in the it was bread. His normal. The bread, it was his put normal. Put it together, and then it's but it's so cold because it's like you're murdering people, mm-hmm. dude. And but that's a real psycho, right? We're getting there. <laughs> we're getting there. We're not there yet. But yes, oh. we're getting there. All right, so Arbor. Yeah. So Arbogast is in the swamp now, and Sam's suspicious. He wants to go check out this because Arbogast didn't call back. So now they go, well, they go to the sheriff, 
and they're asking about Norman Bates and how our guest reported to the two of them that oh, the mother talked to talk talked to them yeah talked to him, or he's going to go talk to the to the mother, and the sheriff or his wife are like well um, that sounds great but she's been dead for like ten years or whatever it was and, right. And they're like, uh oh. So, and yeah, you're like, wait, what? No, I hear her again. Like, I hear her. And then we see Norman go back up. We get, we, we revisit the God shot and we see Norman carry his mom downstairs mm-hmm. under her protest. And it's like, well, we see the mom. Mm-hmm. We hear the mom. Well, and we also saw the, saw, I'm using air quotes there saw the mom kill Marion Crane, right? Right. Like and and Arbogast. Sure. Um great dolly zoom in mm-hmm. that shot too, by the way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um Oh, we'll talk about the dolly zoom when we get to Vertigo. I'm Don't sure. you worry. I know. Can't wait. Mm-hmm. And so Sam and uh, Lila just okay, something's wrong. Either mm-hmm. Arbogast was lying. Mm-hmm. And he ran off to go find Marion. He got a hot lead and he went off on his own. Mm-hmm. Or something happened to him. We're not sure. We don't know. So we're going to go check out this Bates Motel, talk to this Norman Bates guy. Yeah. They come over. They check in at, under like a, this ruse of being a, a married couple. And they split up his first of grounds, essentially. So, mm-hmm. again, the ledger comes out. and uh, Or does it, does it come out again? I don't, think, I don't think it comes out a second time. I don't remember. And uh, as many times as I've seen this film. And so basically, so Sam decides I want to stall Norman. You you search. Um, they, well, they found they found in the uh, uh, cabin one the part of the parchment that she tried to flush in the toilet that didn't go down. Mm. And you know, showing the four forty thousand dollars subtracting from yeah. the other amount. Yeah. So, okay, she was here. Yeah. Now where's she at? Mm-hmm. And so she decides, hey, why don't you go install Norman? I will go to the house trying to find his mom. I can handle an old lady. Sure. She goes upstairs, and she she goes upstairs. She sees the bedroom, and she sees Norman's bedroom. It's still set, like, for a child. Mm-hmm. And that looks really off-putting. That's, that's weird. Why is it mm-hmm. still... We don't know. We don't know why. So she runs downstairs down to the basement as Norman knocks out Sam. He's like, "Wait a minute!" He mm-hmm. he he figures out that they're on to him. He knocks out Sam. He runs up to the house, and he runs upstairs. I love Hitchcock's use of upstairs and levels and. Mm-hmm. Oh, we'll get to levels. Um, so she she's like, okay. She goes down to the basement and she sees mother in the corner. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Bates. Mrs. Bates. And she turns it around. Oh. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> mother is a sitting corpse. Mm-hmm. And then here. Still looking at you with hollowed eyes, though. <laughs> so unsettling. <laughs> and then we have Norman. Oh, my God. Wait, see, that's. To me, that's more unsettling than yes. Then you think, oh, that's creepy. Oh my god, what the fuck? Here comes his cross dressing language and facial expressions, and uh, you're just like. 
oh my god, the way he has, he had the crazy look, like, <laughs> I'm gonna kill you, and, and thankfully, Sam shows up, and, and we cut straight to the police department. But wait, do you think he had a look that I'm gonna kill you? I think he had a look of, I've been figured out, I've been, I have no, no. no. I think he was fully, and what the psychologist goes on to explain yeah. in the next scene, he was there. He or he was locked into to mother. Sure. And so he was operating under like, I have, I see a threat. Um, I'm going to go kill this person to kill this threat, get mm-hmm. rid of it. Mm-hmm. And I guess I got to put another car in the swamp, you know. Right. And, um, but yeah, we cut to the, the, um this huge monologue by this psychiatrist mm-hmm. to kind of like dump all this exposition about how Norman was the one who killed his mother and her lover and how Norman's been operating with two personalities mm-hmm. and this theme of guilt mm-hmm. and, and control mm-hmm. is just rampant in Norman and, and like, he kind of like kind of just, glosses over the fact that he killed his sister he he, he killed her sister because mm-hmm. she flat out asks him did he kill him yeah. right right and and the and arbogast too and it's it was and we and it reaffirms it was never about the money mm-hmm. money doesn't matter anymore mm-hmm. it hasn't mattered for most of the film right and because it definitely didn't matter to norman no what do you say it was a crime of, of passion not profit right well, and I think, you know, there's all these things too, right? Whereas, like, was Marion, like, if you're looking at it through the eyes of Norman, was he wanting to kill Marion because she rejected him? Or was it because the mother felt like she was a threat? Like, you're, you're, you're thinking of so many different possibilities now. Yeah. And, you know, he, Norman Bates was trying to be his mother. Mm-hmm. And protect his mother. I think it's very Oedipal, a lot of it, because <clears throat> he was jealous of his mother finding another man, mm-hmm. and he turned. He assumed a lot of guilt that his mother or his mother would probably place on him for finding another woman. Like you can't have it both ways. Mm-hmm. You can't. You can't have me have no one else. Mm-hmm. You but. Therefore, you yeah. can't have any of the That goes back for to yourself. one of like the best quotes ever of well, a boy's best friend is his mother. You know, Ugh. yeah. When you think back on that, I mean, quote. depending on how it's addressed and, and presented, it's a very it could be a very sweet thing. Like, yeah, like a guy who takes care of his mom, great. Well, that again, that's what. But it, yeah, but I mean, but also again to this point, it's like it foreshadows a little bit that he can't let his mom go, mm-hmm. and now mom is there forever, mm-hmm. and so we're left with. Norman Bates not being around anymore. He's gone. He he's off the deep end. He's off the reservation. It's just mother you're talking to. Mm-hmm. So, I want this question. I wanted to ask. Okay, you. please lay it on me. Whose story is this movie? Hitchcock's. <laughs> no, no, no. In the movie cycle, from end to end, mm-hmm. who is the story about? Norman. What do you mean? I don't. I don't really understand what you're asking. Okay, because 
like who's the protagonist who's the the hero protagonist whose story is this because because you're you're set up with one mm-hmm. and it gets pulled out from under you yeah be and, that being marion you're set with her and then yeah right and i'm gonna tie this back to our sons of the lambs thing for in a second mm, okay okay and back to the oscars because i know how you are yes uh, a, a fangirl for the oscars yes so to the point Hannibal lecter Anthony Hopkins was nominated and won Best Actor mm-hmm. in a le- leading role. Yet yes. he has 16 minutes of screen time. And I was making the argument with you, not that he did a bad job or he wasn't deserving because right. he was they, fantastic, yeah. but he was a supporting role. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> Marion Crane is set up, marketed as a star. Mm-hmm. She And at the time, she was a big movie star. Mm-hmm. She gets killed, and she was nominated for a supporting actress because she's mm-hmm. supporting. Mm-hmm. So it begs the question, what dictates what's a leading and what's a supporting role? Mm-hmm. Because you can make the argument, I feel like I make the argument, that there wasn't a lead actor in Sons of the Lambs, lead acting role. It was Crawford, Buffalo Bill, Hannibal Lecter, Dr. Chilton. Those were mm-hmm. all supporting roles. Mm-hmm. The star was Clarice. And it follows. Or actually, we go back in time to Psycho. Marion Crane was not the star she was not the lead she was not she was the MacGuffin, in a way of the story right Mm -hmm. i feel so i want to ask that's why i was waiting to ask you because it's this movie pulls out the rug from you Mm -hmm. and it 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 totally tricks you Mm -hmm. and it's is that fair because in a conventional storytelling arc the hero's journey, whatever three act, whatever kind of convention that we have been uh, uh, conditioned to accept is how we present stories to, to people. Mm-hmm. How we tell stories, it's beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. It's John's story. John does this. He has a problem. He has to overcome the problem. He grows. He learns the end. But here, our hero, air quotes, is Norman Bates or a villain, our main character is introduced late. Mm-hmm. And even when he's introduced, he's kind of like a side character because we're still under this assumption that right. this main this main actor is Marion Crane and his money is, is relevant to the story. It's mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. So I guess, is that fair? Is, is that a, a fair setup for a story? To like have this main, what I uh, what I feel to be the main character, uh, come in solely to the story. And regardless of how you feel, I think it's a testament to the misdirection mm-hmm. that Hitchcock uses. Yeah, and that's why, why I would argue it's his story. <laughs> yeah, like I don't I think it's this. All everything is secondary. Like I think, you know. I but I mean, looking at it through a very different film lens, but I mean, but hang on a second because this is based off source material. Yeah. So yes, but so this is the argument of director versus auteur as well. That even though you're someone who derives your material from something else, 
when you think Psycho, you don't think the book that it's based off of. You think the film by Alfred Hitchcock. Sure. He's the I owner. Totally agree. He's the owner of it. He's, and that's, I mean, a lot of his stories were from other source materials, but he is the true owner of the story. Okay. I mean, so, so, but to my, you didn't answer my question though. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's Norman's story. I would agree. Yeah, and he's the one that he's the the final shot, too. You know. Yeah. I uh, I really wanted to. I really wanted to like, you know, look at this because and and look at how often or how uncommon it is for a story to kind of give you this setup where it's, you know, this subterfuge of a main actor, actress, a main character, but we find out later that is not a main character. Mm-hmm. They're important because they have to they have to push the plot. Yeah. They're there for a, a reason. Yeah. And, but is it a cheat to the audience? Is it a cheat? Cheat's not the right word. Is every... It's manipulation. Is it? But, okay, is every manipulation... Earned? Deceitful or, or, or yeah, or is it a cheat? Is it like, hey, what are you doing to us, man? That's not fair. I think some people would argue yes, but but I think that's why it's so brilliant. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just right, and what... I think, but I think that's the connotation that comes along with it, right? Like, why are you deceiving me? Why are you like? I think the way you're asking it, like, is it a cheat? Is it a? It's absolutely a manipulation, but it's so much more entertaining than if, like, think about if Hitchcock would have presented it outright. It wouldn't be a memorable story. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So. <clears throat> yeah. So I'm, I'm going to tie this back into the movie Frozen. Have you seen Frozen? I've seen Frozen. Okay. Oh, I can't wait for this. How are you going to do this? So Okay. <laughs> Okay. okay, who's the villain in Frozen? The first one? Yes. Oh, John, it's been a while since I've seen well, it. The, um, the, 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 the prince from somewhere else, Oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. The first guy she meets, the... Um... For the first time. No, no, no. No, no, no. it's... Um... Um, finish each other sandwiches. Yeah, thank yeah. you. That's exactly what Whatever that doing. song's called. Right, so... Okay, he ends up being the What's villain. that song, John? That's going to drive you crazy. I don't know. Um, it doesn't matter. It, okay. okay. <laughs> it's, it, here's what matters. Okay. I know, and every time I hear that song, I love that song when I hear it, but I'm like, but he's the bad guy. Anyways. Okay, you're right. Yeah. So after we see the first, see Frozen the first time, we uh, know he's the bad guy. Yeah. But when they first meet, he first meets Anna, right? Mm-hmm. So they kind of have a cute little, like, wrapped up and he falls in the water and it's all funny and cute and mm-hmm. everything and then she oh, i gotta go and she leaves right and then he pops his head up and he smiles at her as she's leaving that is a cheat because he is going to be the villain yeah yeah so it's not it, that's not earned his little cute little smile as she's running away like oh a cute kid what a cute girl whatever mm-hmm. whatever he's thinking because mm-hmm. he's the bad guy that's not right i'm gonna Dying on that You're hill. You're gonna die on that hill. So, so I think that's poor use of misdirection. I think it's not fair because that's not true to the character. Is that because it's a Disney movie? No, it, it's in, in no. I don't do it being Disney at all. Okay. 
It's just simple storytelling. Okay. All right. You're telling me, you're presenting this character to me that is going to eventually become known to be the villain. Yeah. Okay. Like how he comes out as the villain later, when he's like looking over the fireplace, he's all like, makes it so she gets cold and everything. Like, mm. oh, wow, he's a bad guy. But when he's alone, because when he's looking, when he's looking at her, when she's, she's running away from him earlier, he's alone. His intentions, he's no, he's, he's around nobody. So his intentions should have been pure. We should have seen that he's, I mean, would it tip us off? Of course. Mm-hmm. And we, and of course they don't, you know, they're too busy trying to pull the rug out from under us that it kind of didn't make any sense. Okay. So I feel that that's a bad example of misdirection. Mm-hmm. Where I feel Psycho is a good example of misdirection. Okay. Because it's a great way to set up a story and we, for like the first 30 minutes or so, we really believe Janet Lee's going to make it to the end. Mm-hmm. She'll get her comeuppance. Either she'll get fired. She'll go to jail. She'll, something will happen to her. Yeah. We just don't know what. We don't know what. The money is like, oh, the money's a big, but it's not. And then we get this new thing where... Um, it's not. It's not anything to do with her. It's all to do with Norman Bates. Yeah. He's the psycho, right? And we don't know to the extent of why he's a psycho till the very end. And but do we still even know why at the very end why he's a psycho? Well, they we know it. what makes him a psycho. We know what makes him a psycho. I mean, what more do you want? I mean, so so obviously there is no real motive and real motivation for why he is the way he is, other than he's a psycho. We know what makes up like so all had, the things that collectively make him up to be a psycho. But but is there any real explanation for why any serial kills people? Serial killer kills people. So okay, it's alluded to very quickly, and it kind of gets glossed over back to the whole mom stuff. He has daddy issues. Sure. The daddy That's issues a... t- tipped him off, kind of started it. And then he, those daddy issues evolved into mommy issues. Yeah. So I would say it was a collective unfit parenting package that he that's the card he was dealt that enabled him to have to develop these psychoses and then in turn called him, caused him to, you know, dress like his mother and, you know, kill people and stuff. So I think... The reason was there. Yeah. Um, I, but I don't I don't disagree with you. I get what you're saying. But my argument is, again, back to Hitchcock's theme of, like, randomness of life and chance and all of these things. That's the real reason. Because there's so many people that have bad parenting sure. issues, whatever, daddy issues, mommy issues, whatever issues, that don't kill people. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not suggesting that if you have these issues, you will become a psycho. Right. But I'm saying those are the reasons that enabled him to sure. be a psycho. Yes. So, I mean, would he have been a psycho otherwise? Maybe. Perhaps. We, we, don't, we don't know. Right. And that's, that's what's never explained. Right. Which I'm fine with. That's great. You know, in, in storytelling, you know, motive. But Well, and that's, that's again, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm defending my my thesis here um that you know that's not important to the for hitchcock to his audience that's not in hitchcock isn't concerned with that he's concerned with 
But it is though. It's that a, it's the human guilt. behavior. It's human behavior. Right. Well, you're, so your thing about Norman Bates or about Psycho is it's got guilt, mm-hmm. and it it's riddled with guilt from everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, well, Marion Crane and Norman Bates at least they're both consumed with guilt, mm-hmm. and it's just for Norman Bates it manifests in different ways. Mm-hmm. For him, it manifests in cross dressing, killing people. And is it just cross dressing though, or is it he truly? thinks he's become his mother right it cross well cross-dressing is a bite and and the killing are both byproducts of his of him assuming this new personality this new identity of keeping his mom alive by acting as her mm-hmm. you know always struck me kind of weird why would he have to keep the corpse around like i i I told him, like, I guess it's to have the corpse there to talk to, but he was already, like, doing it to himself. This, that's just something, like, a back thought I had that didn't really mean much, but I was just like, did it really need the corpse? I mean, it was good for aesthetic shock factor at the yeah. end. But, uh... I don't know. I think some people could argue, like, I don't know, does he really even think his mom's dead? You know? No. Right. Right. So, like, let me ask you this. Okay. And then we'll, we'll I'll, let me ask you this one question. And barring anything else, we'll kind of just we'll, we'll jump to ratings. But okay. Mm-hmm. So I love exposition when it's handed handled well, or when it's shown to us, right? Like I like being shown that this this is why this is this way. Okay. So. The only problem I have with this movie is the ending. Hmm. Not, the, not the immediate last shot. And last shot's perfect. And then the credits rolling as they're pulling up the car out of the swamp's great. Mm-hmm. But the, the whole monologue with the psychologist guy, I mean, yeah, it feels like, it feels like they're trying to, like, they blew their wad with Norman Bates, but he's the one killing people. But I think they could have just trim that down they gave us too much agreed agreed it's very um let me cater to the dumbest person in the audience like i don't because you know people watch this movie like i don't get it right and it's like okay let's i don't think that was that doesn't seem like hitchcock style yeah that i i would agree that's probably my only quote-unquote problem with the film i just felt like that whole scene is too long like you said the monologue's too long um I agree. I think it's I think it's a little muddled, but I think at that time they probably thought it was necessary. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm okay with it, but it's just yeah, like, that, I, me I, too. I, I'm always like, all right, let's get on with this at that point. Yeah, let's but talk. Go ahead. First time watch, first time people in 1960. They're gonna have questions. Is probably necessary, especially when like you know this cause this movie had to get across like the moral censorship people and mm-hmm. the the, the What's that code? The um, Marxist or no? What was it it, you know what I mean. It was like the center, the Catholic Church had to give like their way in with their two cents, and mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh. Um, but it, it got through, and, and but even st- even then, like the whole theme of like cross dressing and and psychoses and everything was still very new, very much in its infancy in the public worldview, like mm-hmm. and like. Compared to like today's day and age, where we openly accept and understand, and there's lots of research, peer-reviewed 
discussions about how people deal with trauma because mm-hmm. that's what Norman was dealing with trauma right and it manifests itself very in a very ugly way in the form of murder mm-hmm. <laughs> repeated counts of murder you know but Serial still like murder. but like you think about like what might have been a, a uh, lackadaisical explanation maybe in the 60s and 50s was like oh he just wasn't raised right or he just had screw loose or he was a queer or he was a fruit bat or he was mm-hmm. or whatever people would just kind of casually throw away these explanations that made themselves feel better about it without really talking about the problem well and also it's all these things right that are like the things that you're spouting off and listing it's like well they're that's different and unlike me right right so it's wrong it's it's that idea of people that automatically think people that are different from them are wrong it's the same reason why there's racism and and homophobia and all these things today is because people can't understand that someone's that just different than them right and is wrong well because people are raised it's all taught it's all learned yeah it's all nature versus nurture and yeah you know it's i'm not gonna get on a religious thing but i'll you know just as to that like if you're born in a certain faith you're gonna grow up believing those faiths tenets are how it should be no matter what religion it is and everything outside of that is is wrong it's mm-hmm. not right and mm-hmm. people get really morally righteous and some people the extreme people act on it and it's and it's but that's also it's how we how we try to navigate the world by you know finding faults in our misunderstandings because we don't know how to deal with them otherwise. And I think, I mean, from 1960 to like the, what, 60 years? I know it's the 60th anniversary this year. I think, I think we've, as a, as a human species, as the human species, we've made some leaps and bounds in 60 mm-hmm. years. We still have a lot of work to do, mm-hmm. um, considering who the president is, but we're not going into that. <laughs> I, might, I might cut that out, lose some viewers. <laughs> but, Fucking don't even. Um, but, yeah, so I think this was really powerful because it does a lot more than just give you a shocking, oh, man, mm-hmm. this guy's crazy. He's a psycho. I think there's... Well, and I think that's why 60, late, 60 years later we're still studying it and talking about it and I'm writing a thesis about it, you know? Um, sure. It's very relevant but still. I, absolutely. But I think... I think also this film stand like stands the test of time. Now I think there's some people, you know, ignorant people in the true sense of the word that would watch it and be like, "Oh, it's so predictable," or "Oh, it's this," or "Oh, it's that." But but they don't have the you gotta give it the leniency and latitude of when how long ago it came out mm-hmm. and what was what was coming out at that time. Right, but I think that's my point is that and that this is why i would argue to your point earlier that you don't think this is a horror film because i think without this film half of the the stories in film and and entertainment would not exist if psycho didn't do it first i mean yeah a lot of people would argue the point that this is the first slasher film mm-hmm. i mean two people die like it's really a slasher film i think body counts are a metric in that in that category but I, I, I totally, I, I for one, 
the horror movie guy over here. Yeah. Totally appreciate and understand it's how big the splash it left in terms of influencing the, all the slasher flicks from the 70s and 80s that came after it. Yes. As well as just, you know, other psychological thrillers that have also have come out since. But it's, I feel like, not to sound pretentious, it's, it transcends horror. It's more than a horror film. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 again, it's not a movie, it's a film. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's a, it's a great case study on the human condition. Absolutely. And that's why it's, I, you know, okay. I love, I love The Shining. Yeah. And I love An American Werewolf in London, my two favorite horror films. Yeah. But I can definitely say that they are well within the pocket of horror. And that's fine. My Shining's my favorite film, and I love it more than Psycho. I love it more than anything. Mm-hmm. But I feel like Psycho has the edge because it came out at the right time. Mm-hmm. Told the right story at the right, with the right hands. Well... And this is something that someone says in 7852, and I think this is where I will pose this to you as my argument, is that this is the first film that made murder an acceptable form of entertainment. And I think that's the difference there, right? Like, yes, there was violence in other films before this. Um, no, I, it's not a Western. Right. It's not a war movie. Right. Where it's expected. Violence in those types of genres mm-hmm. are they're going to, okay, corral shootout or beach landings in World War II. Guys get killed. Hey, that's how that's how the cookie crumbles. Yeah. But it's not supposed to happen at home. They even alluded to this. In your shower. In your shower where you're supposed to be safe and comfortable. Yep. So I totally agree. It's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah it, I, I got it, no I argument. I think it paves the way for. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I, and that's why I would say it is our film because, but it's funny too, because even like I was thinking about this, um, last night thinking about talking about this today on the podcast and, you know, obviously I took a horror class for my, for my master's degree, all horror films. Right. And, you know, in the beginning of class, you know, online classes, you do like a little introduction, like, Oh, this is who I am. This is about me, blah, blah, blah. Sure, sure. And my professor that taught the, um, horror class it was funny because, like, he introduced himself and he's like, nah, like, I don't really want to disappoint anyone, but, like, I wouldn't consider myself a horror buff. Like, I'm not really into this genre, but, you know, I teach this class or whatever. And honestly, like, reading that, I was, like, a little disappointed in hearing him say that. But I also was like, well, I'm not really, like, a horror buff either. And he even said, like, you know, they'll pose some questions. Like, tell us about yourself. Tell us this. Tell us what your favorite horror film is. Tell us what other genres you're into. And I was like... Well, like, you know, I actually documentaries are my favorite genre, which they are. But I was like, yeah, I don't really consider myself a horror buff either. But Silence of the Lambs is my favorite film. Um, I love Psycho. I'm obsessed with Alfred Hitchcock. You know, and then I started naming all these things. And he like, he even responded to me. And he was like, Erica, I think you are like a little bit of a horror buff. You know what I mean? And yeah. I was like, oh, like, I guess I am. Because it's that argument too is like, and that was. What is horror? Exactly, and that was such a part of our discussion in that class is, like, what classifies horror? And why is it such this, like, shunned genre? Like, I mean... And I th- and I think and I hope that's changing. So, I mean, I even mentioned this in my, very, my second episode ever. Yes. Um, I mentioned this, how sometimes it, get, it gets a bad rap because it's, it's, it's littered mm-hmm. and layered thick with really poor productions. Yeah. And poor stories, because horror movies, they make money 
back. So, so from a business perspective, I can make a horror movie on a $100,000 budget, mm-hmm. make tenfold back opening weekend, knowing system like systemically horror movies fall week, week, weekend two, weekend three. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can crank out another one next month and the next month. Mm-hmm. So it's, they're like quick little, like, you know, it's like when you're selling, when you're, when you're selling furniture, you gotta sell big dining room table pieces. It's like, let me sell this quick couple of glasses or set of plates. I know I'm gonna people need them. They're gonna want them. This design will be out of out of out of uh, vogue here in a week. Mm-hmm. I got this other backup set ready to go. So that's kind of how I look at horror movies, as far as like the grand pot they're boiled in, because a lot of horror movies are absolute horseshit. Mm-hmm. They are just bad movies. Mm-hmm. I don't enjoy them. Like the Netflix selection is complete garbage. Hmm. Like I know horror fans that like, oh, it's if it's scary, I'm fucking there. I'm like, not me. I can't do it. You need the story. I I, I need it to be a good movie. Yeah. You know, do I like some of the trash that comes out? Fucking right, I do. Yeah. Um. A good trashy werewolf movie, I'm fucking there, or or whatever. Right. You know, but like when you. And it sounds really snobby me to say, but I don't give a shit. We're it, allowed to be film snobs here. Um, absolutely. Like some horror films, I just, I just can't get behind. Like what? Um, when when a, when a, okay, give you an example. When a certain trend gets tired, it, it gets tired out quickly. Example: found footage. Oh my god, they beat us over the head with these fucking movies for about. Eight or what? nine years. The found footage, the paranormal activities. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah all that yeah, kind of yeah, crap. Yeah, yeah. You know, or it's the, um, these, uh, these exorcism movies where it's like you're telling the same story with yeah. a shittier story, with, with a shittier story, less talented actors, and it, you're getting with the, the, the budget can only pay for so much. So, um, and I think too, I think it's all, you know, certain that like, so, I don't, let me catch off. So, okay. okay so for the good horror films have a good story, or they have a good theme running and and the undercurrent. Like um, a lot of people don't think about an American werewolf in London being um, dealing with anti-Semitism, but it does. Mm. It's very mm-hmm. subtle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's there. It's layered. It's layered thick, but it's not. It doesn't punch you in the face. Right. And. Um, just you know it's like it's about this but it's not really about this but it's about this exactly like right. and, and then like movies that deal with like identity and, uh-huh. and and or being feeling like you're misplaced or displaced uh some examples aren't really coming to my head right I away mean, but you know um isolation and feeling alone and feeling cut off in the world one as an introvert and as someone who's dealt with trauma i can relate to those kinds of movies and, um, but, and you look at, you look at like any top horror movie of all time list. It's always the same, same characters. It's mm-hmm. Alien, it's The Shining, it's the old Dracula, it's, uh, Jaws, it's, it's these, you know, these regulars. Mm-hmm. They always come back and you look at their sequels. Psycho 2, Psycho 3, Jaws the Revenge, Halloween 6. Horse shit across the board. Yeah. Um, and then 
you get these new conventional or unconventional horror films that come out, like your Hereditaries, your It Mid-summer. Follows. <laughs> oh my God. Mm-hmm. And like we did our Midsummer episode. I probably will not willingly go back to that movie. Right. If I don't have to. Right. I, it's still in my head. Yeah. And and I know Midsummer's not the greatest movie ever made. I'm not saying that it is, but a horror movie is really well done. Yeah, and there's so many people that shit on that movie, and I'm just like, you don't get it. Like, you don't get, like, you don't get it, you know? Like, it, like I could watch 10 slasher, zombie, alien, hybrid, and found footage movies, and just like... With Midsommar. Well, I'll sleep through all of them. Yeah. But I, I like, I just parts of Midsommar I can't watch again. Yeah. Well, I can watch them. I'm not trying to be like, oh, I can't watch them, be melodramatic, but... I, I totally get what you're saying. It's ups, it's ups, it's it's upsetting to me. Yeah, and I I started doing um you know obviously with everyone being so bored, there's like the music challenges and the film challenges and stuff and and the, my answer for midsummer or my answer for um a film that made you really uncomfortable. My answer is midsummer. Yeah. <laughs> um because it, I I think in every true sense of the word that film is uncomfortable. And I mean. But like so, but movies like that, um, what are going to stand? Like we're going to come back in ten years, and Midsummer will still be sticking around. Yeah. Um, it, movies like It Follows will still be there. The Babadook. Get out. Get out. Get out. Really good. You, you know, know they, these films are, you know, kind of they're kind of Kubrickian, meaning they come out and people are like, they mm-hmm. him and haw it or mm-hmm. they're so so, and then we look back in a decade like. Oh, we uh, really overlooked that. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and and that's that. This is the new class of yeah. of, of great contemporary yep. horror. Yep, I agree. Um, another one that's always in that top ten or whatever list of great horror is, of course, The Silence of the Lambs. Yes, that's great, great fucking horror. Okay, yeah, we have prattled on long enough, my listeners. I'm so, if you're still with us, we're going to do ratings and we'll wrap it up. So thank you for being great sports and listening to us moan and groan about what we don't like about horror <laughs> and about the movie frozen <laughs> yeah that was a that was a curveball i, I wasn't mm-hmm. terribly going with that but Misdirection. i i see i <laughs> i well and it's but it's funny to even think about like would some, would a film like frozen have taken a direction like that if not for psycho like i'm sure you can make the argument yeah and i will that's a hill i'll die on <laughs> i'm always i'm always dying on hills you are oh my gosh Okay. What? I just, oh my gosh. I just kind of, kind of oh my gosh, real quick. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's talk ratings. Okay. Do you remember my ratings? Scheme? I do. Well, well. I do. But you know what I'm going to give this. I won't presume to know anything that you're going to say. You say so much shit anyway. <laughs> so, okay. Go ahead. But go ahead and just for the audience, what are you going to give us? I'm giving it an A. Plus. Which is a flawless victory. I think it's flawless. I think it's um, Hitchcock's legacy. I think, um, I and I give it this because I truly, truly believe it forever changed cinema in so many ways. So many ways. From it creating showtimes to having an effect on a film like Frozen, um, presenting misdirection, just all of the things that this film did for cinema it changed i truly believe this is the film that changed cinema for the rest of time 
I'm gonna give it a D. I'm just kidding. Oh my um, god, I literally was about to be like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" I was about to be actually mad at you. You looked so serious for a second. No, I'm gonna give it an A plus. Yeah. Also, um, it's so good for all those reasons you just you just I'm gonna echo your I'm just gonna steal everything you just said and I'll plagiarize your your <laughs> reasons behind the A plus. It's a flawless victory for me because, mm-hmm. like you said, there's so it it is an anchor point for so much pro- progression in film. But not just for film, but for society. Yeah. And that's what a truly, truly great film can do. Absolutely. Um, A a film doesn't get talked about 60 years later and not get an A+. I mean, right? it it, it did something right. It did. Um, It's, you know what, and I think, oh, okay, we have our ratings out there now. Yeah. Now, I'm going to ask you off the cuff as fast as you can, your favorite part, aspect Inside, outside, whatever around. What's your favorite part of Psycho? The reveal of of the mother in the basement and that that turnaround of her body, you know, and you realizing she's dead. Fuck, Norman is actually, you know, and and I wrote about this in my thesis. Um, you know, not only does Sam come in and and stop him from killing. Marion's sister right Mm -hmm. the beautiful way that the hair comes off the 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 dress unravels is like showing the different layers of Norman right I just Mm -hmm. think I think all of that in that scene is done so beautifully um and you're still just like like you're just so you're in such shock but but also it's Hitchcock's way of this like shock and surprise but the build-up of that is the suspense right mm-hmm. so you know again you think you're seeing his mother you're hearing his mother all these things and you think you're gonna get that reveal of her and then it's a it's a, like you said a corpse and you're just yeah. shocked again i would say for for me um it's twofold okay it's the use of shots that Hitchcock presents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hitchcock presents. <laughs> that was a nice little zing. Zing. Yeah. Um, I just love how he works the camera here. Yeah. And, he, and what he's really doing, he's working this over. Yeah. Oh, that motherfucker. Manip- so good. This is um, this is my thesis. This is the manipulate. Like, he manipulates with the camera. Oh, yeah. And the edit and the sound and, and the well, props and, and the, the, all the things. The counterpoint, the other thing I, I can't. That would, without this, would not have made the film what it was. Is the score? Yeah. Um. It's so I think so often sometimes music can be used as a crutch. Mm-hmm. But I think this this one is like the best cherry on top. Yeah. Because this the acting's there, the story's there, sets are there. I love the California landscape. I love everything about this film anyway. Yeah. yeah. But it's the extra polish. Mm-hmm. It's actually coat of wax or whatever. It's just that oh, it just makes it pop. Yeah. Well, I I can't remember where I, this is somewhere in my, in my paper. Either I read it or it's in the documentary. I can't remember what now. But something about the sound of this and the score is that it's not at all harmony. There's no harmony in in. It's all in, also just strings. Yeah. It's only violent. Oh, it's, string. it's not just violins. It's other string no, instruments. No, violent, violent, oh, oh, violent. Um, it's no. It's not harmony. It's not. You don't. Oh, I misunderstand. Yeah. Yes. You don't get any ease 
there's no harmony in the sounds. It's only violent. It's very aggressive, up-tempo. Yeah, exactly. Uh, was one melody. It's not harmonic. It's... Yeah. That running... Um, I love that score, too. It's... I love Vertigo's... Chef's Kiss. Chef's Kiss. I love Vertigo's score. We'll get to that. I listen to Vertigo's score on Spotify and Parasite's score on Spotify. We'll get there, though. Okay. Well, (laughs) that was Psycho. Um... Thank you, Erica, for stopping by You're and welcome. talking. I love, I love this film. I'm glad I love that this film too. That I'm glad you were happy to come over and oblige. I'm and a regu- I'm gonna be a regular, whether you like it or way. not. Yeah. I oh, see you that. seem super excited about oh, that. Man. Here we go, folks. <laughs> All right. So, um, again, anything you want to plug before we wrap up here? Mm, follow me, Erock Reviews, on Twitter. Okay. With my film stuff. Yeah. Any, any articles coming out? Are you written? Um. I'm trying. Once I finish up my thesis, I'm gonna start writing again. I just really want to get this fucking thesis done. Um, so once, I mean, yeah. So with writing, um, I'm I'm pitching some other stuff, some places, um, hopefully some reviews and stuff. But it's so it's so hard right now with you know like your thesis. With yeah, that and like theaters, you know, being closed. Like there's oh, yeah. really a bunch of new stuff coming up out right now. So it's hard to write like reviews for new stuff. But um fair enough yeah so we'll see we'll but see e-rock reviews follow me there all right folks you heard her there okay um we're gonna wrap it up here and mm-hmm. next time we'll talk about some uh other great films mm-hmm. that are that have come out so all right guys this is blood sweat and popcorn your host john thanks for stopping by and we'll see you guys next time bye bye good times thanks so much to Erica for stopping in. If you like what you heard, give us a rating and subscribe to Blood, Sweat, and Popcorn wherever you hear podcasts. And reminder, please go check us out on social media at BSP Film Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Next week, well, next week will be a bit of a surprise, so stay tuned. Thanks again for stopping by, and until next time, take care, guys. Mm-hmm.